Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Owen Murph and Ken all here. Hello, hello. We're all here, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen the same line trotted out a few times since Mayweather Pacquiao. Along the lines, variations on the same line. If that was the fight of the century, we should all give thanks. We've got another 85 years to find a better one. Is a, a, it's in terms of hype against substance, that line doesn't seem to be really registering with you there, lads. You're both very blank looks. I'd read it over the weekend, yeah. so uh, mm. I can't say that I was surprised. No. The one thing I'm slightly surprised by, I don't know if I'm surprised by it, but from a purely boxing viewpoint, right, Mayweather is the one facing, it seems to me, the vast majority of the criticism. When he's the guy who performed to the same level that he always does and in the same style that he always does, it was Pacquiao who, and there, there are question marks about whether there was any way of beating Mayweather. I don't think there was, given that Pacquiao was the guy who was a number of years past his best. It, it's a funny one. Now, there are many other reasons to criticise Mayweather, as we outlined last week's show, but in pure boxing terms, people seem angry with Floyd Mayweather for fighting like Floyd Mayweather. Yeah, he, did, he gave them exactly what he was always going to give them. That's what he always gives them, and what he always gives the spectators is something they don't really want to see which is uh, a great uh, boxer, a great technician, not taking any chances, not taking any risks, not giving anyone any um, anything really to get excited about uh, because he's never going get, to get hit. His entire career is about avoiding getting hit. You know, I mean, I was watching... Uh, I, I mean, the I was watching it on Sky Box Office, yeah. which I imagine most of us probably were, and uh, I remember at one point afterwards, Carl Frock. I mean, they were talking about the um, the how it had um, panned out, and everybody thought Mayweather had won quite comfortably. And Carl Frock said, "You know, it's an absolute one-sided whooping for Mayweather. You know, he's absolutely dominated, and that was true. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a mark on Manny Pacquiao. He Pacquiao looked the same as he had when he came into the ring. Now, a really great." display by a master, you know, the, the the best ever, would surely involve at some point having planted one on the opponent. You want to see blood and guts. It doesn't, it doesn't, it can't, I would be, like to it see, can't be a technical masterclass if it doesn't involve massive bleeding from the opponent. I would like to see, um, no, it's, it's, it's not a question. See, the technical masterclass, it was a technical masterclass, undoubtedly. There's no doubt about that. He Technically, he's brilliant. He's far above the level of Pacquiao. I think he probably would have beaten Pacquiao even if he hadn't ducked him until uh, until Pacquiao got old and, and, and tired. I mean, I think Pacquiao was not the same fighter that I've seen before. He didn't attack with the same aggression. Um, he didn't have the energy to, to, to... He didn't have the movement to... to hit Mayweather, you know, repeatedly. He didn't have the strength to hurt him when he did. He didn't have the energy to keep doing it after the sixth round. Um, it was it was dominant, but that's not what people want to see. It is what Mayweather delivers, though. This is what this is why I, I made the point that I'm slightly surprised at the anger. Maybe I'm not. People stay up until all hours. People pay a lot of money to see something, and they are maybe expect, maybe falling into the hype a little bit too much because Mayweather did what he always does, Pacquiao, it was flagged well in advance that this isn't the same Pacquiao as a few years ago. So the only thing that could have happened that would have 
altered people's enjoyment of the fight was a different performance from Pacquiao. Mm. Uh, so, uh, a more, uh, you know, if Pacquiao had really rattled Mayweather, yeah. if he'd really, instead of, the closest he got was, you know, flurries of punches to the guard and after which Mayweather would look, look up over the guard and shake his head. Nah. You know, and it didn't look as though he really Although was funny, strong I, I, I thought he might be trying to convince himself there. There were a couple of times in the first, I actually thought the first six rounds were quite, had the potential, made it look as though there was the potential for it to be exciting because it was round four when Pacquiao did cause a bit of trouble. I think it was then round six where he caused a small bit more. I say trouble, it wasn't as though Mayweather was on the verge of being knocked out, but it looked like he might be able to hurt him. And then from the second half of the fight was just, uh, yeah, one-sided, one-sided whooping. One-sided whooping is, is, is Fox. That, I mean, I, I think that if, if you want to be remember this, if you want to be the kind of fighter that people really get excited about, you have to take chances because that's what... That's what's exciting. Yeah, and that's that's but in, that, that's, that's, that's in that's the ring in fights, and that's also but that's what's going to get you of, with your choice both. of points. But well. that's also what's going to get you beaten. Uh, whatever. Yeah, but that's the that's what makes it exciting. Whatever about outside the ring and when he chooses, and this is an, again another masterclass by Mayweather of picking a guy at the right time, of mm. picking Pacquiao when he's not the Manny Pacquiao that he was a few years ago. He's done this his entire career. But once you're in the ring, I think you have to do all. You, 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 it's crazy to expect. Mayweather to stand there and trade with Pacquiao and potentially open himself up to being beaten when actually he can produce this. No, and, no, I, and, no. and, and I, I must say, I, loads of him as he is as a man. I mean, as a sportsman, his, his, his ability, it's Mayweather, is, is frightening. It's yeah, unbelievable. But, yeah, but, but that's, that, that's, it's a totally different argument. I mean, you're talking about Floyd. what should Floyd Mayweather do. I mean, what we're talking about is why, is, uh, why isn't... Why was uh, everyone cheering for Manny Pacquiao? Yeah. No, what, not, why were they cheering for Manny Pacquiao? Why were they, getting, why were they so annoyed with Mayweather for the, his tactical approach to the fight? All these memes of him running away and all because these Because kind of it's like, like Pacquiao said, he didn't do nothing. That's what Pacquiao said. Pacquiao didn't do nothing either. <laughs> Pacquiao at least had a go. Pacquiao was, was trying to force it. He just not, didn't have the ability to do it against somebody of Mayweather's class. Now, Mayweather had all that class, had all that dominance and did nothing with it. Um, apart from essentially hold Pacquiao at arm's length, um, keep him at bay and, you know, score points and take it. Now, the, you, you're saying it would be crazy for him to do anything else. And that's obviously Floyd's, he's a calculated guy. You know, he, he, he said it about himself afterwards. I'm a calculated fighter. You know, the bit that he's missing is the bit that, the thing that he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand why nobody likes him. Why do they not like me? You see it immediately after, in the ring afterwards. What do you want? What, what do you want? What do you want? Are you not entertained? You know, this is, this is him. No, we're not, because you've missed the point. You've missed the point of this. You're too good to fight the way that you fight. You know, if you were to, if you were to take some risks, people, people would respect that. People, it would be thrilling. You wouldn't have anybody saying, oh, you know, another Mayweather, you know, another Mayweather performance there last night. You know, no one can lag love on this guy, but sh- when's he going to retire? You know, it's, I'm reminded here of, um, have you ever read Death in the Afternoon, the Ernest Hemingway book about... Bullfighting. I know Ernest Hemingway wrote lots about boxing as well, but he's probably more interesting talking about bullfighting. I have that book, Ken. It's one of those books that's sitting there. I can actually picture it in my room and I haven't quite got to it yet. So. Well, well, he talks about why some matadors are loved by the crowd and why others are hated by the crowd. And the thing that all of the ones who are loved have in common, unless they're able to trick the crowd, which none of them can get away with for very long, um, is that when they're killing the bull, they are exposing themselves to danger. The point is that you have to expose yourself to danger in order for the crowd to respect what you're doing. You have to give the bull a chance to get the horn into you or all you're doing is assassinating an animal, a dumb animal. You know what I mean? It's, so he, he talks about, the, he goes through it at great length. I'm not going to bore you with it now. Owen, but the, 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 what the crowd is responding to is the fact that you are brave enough to take a chance with your own safety in order to provide the truest spectacle for them. That's what this thing is about. Yeah, I would say about getting in a ring at that level with somebody like Manny Pacquiao, you, you are actually taking that risk and you have to minimise it in order to win the fight. But I do take the point that I would like to think that some of the lack of popularity is down to his history of domestic abuse that we outlined at the weekend and his, uh, his team ruling, uh, uh, refusing to accredit certain journalists who've been criti- critical of him in the past. But uh, probably more likely, a lot of it is down to his style if, in the ring. If Mayweather was a bullfighter, he would be sitting in the stands shooting poison darts at the bulls. He, you know, he <laughs> He'd does take not... a rifle into the, into the arena. <laughs> you know, he would, he, I mean, all the bulls, would, they'd run into the ring, they'd all be dead two minutes later, and he'd be looking around going, Why don't you like me? The best ever. And everyone's going, well, that's not really what we came to see. We didn't 
really come to see the Bulls kill you. We just came to see you give them the chance to do it so that we know that you're uh, the kind of the bra- the kind of brave man who deserves the applica- uh, acclamation of the crowd. You know, th- this is kind of what Floyd doesn't give people. He's For him, it's just enough to be, you know, this brilliant technical boxer. But there's no drama in that. There's no risk. In, and that's why he leaves people cold. We're going to talk to ESPN's Don Vanata Jr. about all that in just a few minutes. Simon Murph, I'm going to ask you. Have you ever the sideline cut in hurling? Is it a skill you've ever tried to perfect? Uh, yes, on quite a lot, quite a bit, and uh, I am about as good at that. I would show the same technical proficiency in a boxing ring with Floyd Mayweather as I would at attempting a sideline cut. That's can literally how air? far. Get it in the air. I can hit it hard enough so that the the ball it would bottles. no, the ball would kind of just. Uh, there's something to, do with, no, something to do with physics rather than any ability would mean that it would get off the ground. I would hit it off the ground hard enough for it to bounce a little bit up. Into so you're the not air. even you're you're not so much cutting it. You're not slice chopping underneath it. You're hitting it almost full on in the face. I'm, I'm doing some gardening. Is basically what I'm doing. <laughs> if you hit and that ball hard enough, it has to go in the air. It has to be for some a small point. bit. Either it goes up straight away or it hits the ground and then goes up. Mm. One way or the other, if it's hit hard enough, <laughs> unless it's in a perfectly straight line across the tips of the grass. Well, Austin Gleeson hit a peach for Waterford over the bar yesterday as they beat Cork to win their, only the third ever league title. He also followed that up, Murph, with uh, quite a ridiculous scoreline on, on the right side, which we'll talk to Yeah, and he's, about uh, he's of a piece with uh, quite a few hurlers in the, in the Waterford tradition, uh, whereby it's kind of like watching a really good player on a really on a bad minor team. And I'm not saying Waterford ever by any stretch of the imagine a bad minor team, but there's guys who they they produce guys who are so good that they can play anywhere basically within the two full lines. So half back, midfield, centre forward, doesn't seem to matter. Just put Kevin Morn, Brick Welsh, now Austin Gleason, anywhere where the ball is, and they'll do something brilliant. And Waterford's and Waterford have obviously produced players like this before, like Ken McGrath would be the obvious example from the last ten or fifteen years. But uh, Waterford now have uh, the, the challenge for Waterford is to make sure that the guys around those guys are are good enough and they're getting there very very quickly probably a lot quicker even than uh, than Derek McGrath had expected Well we'll chat to one of the great inter-county forwards of recent times Tips Owen Kelly about that and the Champions I think the lack of interest in the Champions Cup final in this part of the world was summed up I've got the Irish Times sports section in front of me nothing on it on the front page there's a little bit on Paul O'Connell and the ongoing link between himself and Toulon but uh, short enough report on page five there. I don't know how many of you have watched it, uh, but we'll talk to Jerry Thornley about not, not so much the game itself, but the future of the tournament. There also seems to be a bit of a certain joylessness around some of the post-match interviews in the Toulon players. They were certainly enjoying themselves dancing around the field and in the dressing room and that kind of thing, but it didn't seem like it was... It, it seems almost as though it's a means to an end in some way. We'll chat to Jerry about that. ESPN's Don Vanada Jr. is ready to talk Mayweather Pacquiao. Don, good to talk to you in the programme again. Is the anger of the fans understandable after this one, or was this a masterclass of boxing that should please any sports fan? Well, a watch Mayweather fight should not have been surprised by the way that fight went. Uh, Mayweather is a defensive boxer. He did what he always does. He's, he's, he's clinical in the way he fights. Uh, he ducks, he bobs, he weaves, and he runs. Uh, but he, he's outstanding. He did what he always does, and uh, so nobody should be surprised. But, of course, the hype was so great that anybody that had expectations for some great master class in boxing uh, would definitely have come away disappointed. Yeah, it does seem that maybe people got what was expected if you stripped away all the hype. It was often likely, it was, it was quite likely that we were going to see Floyd Mayweather win this fight quite easily. But I was quite struck by the immediate uh, post-match persona of reaction of Mayweather. You know, he's up on the, on the buckle there. He's giving it lots of the crowd. What, what more do you want? What do you want? Give me the belts. All the, the usual Floyd Mayweather type stuff. But he seems to have built himself into this evil villain figure to sell tickets that, while secretly or maybe underneath it all, actually wanting to be liked by the fans. It seemed to genuinely bother him that he was getting booed during the fight. That way, yeah. I mean, he's the hometown guy. He lives in Las Vegas, and everybody in the arena is felt rooting uh, for Pacquiao. And and I agree with you. I think that Mayweather seems surprised at the end when he sort of stood up and he was the crowd. I told you, I told you this was going to happen. Looking for applause, even just a little bit of applause, and even still booed. Uh, he certainly has cashed in, though, on that devil persona, as you say, uh, making more money in boxing than any other boxer in history. 
but to now suddenly love some affection, uh, that's just not going to be coming for him. It really isn't. And uh, in the midst of all this, we talked late last week about the history of domestic abuse that he has away from the ring. Michelle Beadle and Rachel Nichols, two of the top uh, broadcast journalists over there, both were refused accreditation. There seems to be some sort of argument on the Mayweather side about what, uh, how true this was, but they're maintaining that they were refused it on the night before and it may have been ultimately issued to them, but they'd already left Las Vegas by this stage. Uh, it, it, it's, it's funny that he's happy enough for, as we say, to build up a certain persona, but maybe when it's too close to the bone, he likes to control that media message quite a lot. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a master at that. And that whole... Uh, very unfortunate uh, incident on Saturday over the credentials for uh, my colleague Michelle Beadle and for Rachel Nichols, who I have a great uh, respect for, uh, really put it in stark relief. Uh, These are two of the most outspoken critics of his long domestic violence history, and to have the credentials yanked the way they were uh, at the 11th hour shows that uh, Mayweather always needs to be in control of that message. And if he feels anybody is not on his team, then they're not welcome uh, to the party. There seems to be a general bad feeling around the entire event. Any Anytime anyone pays a lot of money, and I know it's the guts of $100 in the US and don't get value for money, they might feel a little bit shortchanged. Will this affect, he's won another fight, he's another step closer to retiring, possibly on 49 or 50 undefeated f- fights. Has this one in any way damaged his legacy or is that a ridiculous question after a guy has upheld his end of the bargain in the ring by winning comfortably? Well, his legacy is secure. You know, 48-0 is is a remarkable uh, record. And as you say, he has likely only one fight left in September. I'm not so sure there will be a rematch with Pacquiao. Maybe there will be. Maybe I'm being naive. There's so much money to be made. Uh, I know some of my colleagues believe that there will be a rematch. But I think he might just go for a pretty easy uh, 49 victory in September and then and then walk away. Uh, and and his legacy as a as a great fighter, certainly the best fighter of his generation, is secure. But the bad feeling that comes from this fight, you're absolutely right. I think of fans, a lot of casual fans who really didn't know much uh, about the fight, just knew that Mayweather-Pacquiao was a marquee event for five years that uh, everybody was pining for that may have watched it certainly is going to feel maybe that their pocket was picked because $99 uh, for that, which was, was pretty much for a casual fan, a pretty boring uh, spectacle. Uh, I don't know whether uh, fans will be willing to, to you know, plunk down another $100 for the next uh, Mayweather uh, pay-per-view event, even if it is a rematch against Pacquiao. I saw one article that had the headline, a headline along the lines of, in, in, as a preview, Mayweather-Pacquiao, is this going to be the rejuvenation of boxing in America or the last stand, a throwback to the old days where the whole country wouldn't get around a radio and then a, subsequently a television and watch a big fight. Would you have an answer to that? Well, that's, that's the great question. I, I, I think it's the last gasp. That, that's what it feels like to me. There's really no young boxers that are, uh, that are up and coming that has really captured the public's imagination here. Uh, you know, these guys are not in their prime. This is a fight that really people wanted to see five years ago and would have been a, a much better fight five years ago. Mayweather is 38, Pacquiao is 36. It, it had a feeling of sort of the end of an era, the, the, the closing of, of the book on boxing in America being front and center. It had a chance, I think, to create a new generation of young fans, and, and in that sense it failed, All without right. question. Okay, Don Bonato Jr., listen, it's uh, always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you, Owen. Appreciate it. If it is seen through the prism of that attempt to rejuvenate boxing or, as Don says, to win over a new generation of fans, I would suggest in future, and maybe that's not what it is, in terms of Mayweather's team and Pacquiao's team, I'm sure it's mostly about getting a lot of money for their guy. But if it was seen through that prism, you would hope for a couple of competitive undercard fights. In fact, you should have serious, proper world title fights. There were two world champions fighting, but they're, oh, it was... The first, they were both so one-sided, it was scary. And in the immediate, the fight immediately pre-Pacquiao Mayweather, even by that stage, there were people barely paying attention. I, I mean, there was one woman I couldn't stop watching her because I noticed her really early on in one of the, in one of the uh, precursor fights. When I say not paying attention, I don't mean half watching. I mean face fully turned around, chatting to the people behind her, chatting to the people to the side, breaking down laughing. And she seemed like a very sociable woman. I mean, she was having a great time and she paid or had you know, got comped with some fairly valuable tickets. So maybe it's up to 
maybe it's uh, it's fair enough that she enjoyed herself, but the whole atmosphere around it seemed a little bit weird. It turns out that if you if Tom Brady and Paris Hilton and John Voigt are your supporters, that that's a lot of star power, sure, but maybe the atmosphere isn't going to be absolutely crackling at all times. Um, no, it really wasn't. Uh, I mean, it was in the sense that, wow, every, you, you had that kind of sense. It was a bit like the Oscars, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, everybody's looking at this now. Look, all the kind of... Uh, you know, all the top people are here. John Voigt, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> you know, literally, this is the world's most elite gathering at this at this moment. You know, Jimmy Kimmel, Rupert Murdoch. You know, well, Jimmy Kimmel walking out with uh, Pacquiao. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, so everybody was. Uh, I mean, as soon as you see all these other people are interested in something, it's like, oh, what are they all looking at? Everybody is 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 drawn in by it. And of course, it turns out to be an anticlimax, as these things so often are, because in order to to justify the build up it has to be a really classic fight and it's just a humdrum enough fight i mean in terms of whether it's going to be like a a death blow to boxing you know i'm never paying i'm never paying to see you know that kind of nonsense again i'm not so sure about that because hope springs eternal and the triumph of hope over experience will mean that there will be another night like that for boxing but i think as don was saying there the problem is who are the kind of the next Mayweather's and Pacquiao's. I mean, at the those guys are thirty six and or thirty eight and thirty six. There should be some promising kind of contenders behind them now. And, I, yeah, you know, I did have to switch over at one stage during the support bouts. I had noticed that this Clippers San Antonio Spurs game was going on, Game Seven of their NBA playoff series, which I had heard would have been absolutely amazing. Hadn't seen a minute of it. There was about, there were about five minutes left. I thought oh, I'll switch over. And, and you know when you get jolted, you're watching one type of sporting event and there's a certain vibe to it. And the vibe at this stage, while the undercard was going on, was you're just waiting for something to happen. There's just nothing, no atmosphere. And you switch into this furnace of an arena that was bouncing off the screen in the playoff game. Went down to the last few seconds. Chris Paul, who's was described as something like the, the tiny man from something, six foot, you know, but he was, he's a pipsqueak in NBA terms, had wrecked his hamstring in, I think, the first quarter, uh, fought on, played on, and the last play of the game, or it's the penultimate play of the game, manages to throw this jump shot above Tim Duncan and one of the other seven-foot giants on the San Antonio Spurs to land the basket and knock out the one of the greatest teams of all time, the Spurs. But uh, we'll move on from American sport because the Champions Cup final was on and Simon has popped over. Simon, how are you? Hey, how's it going? And Jerry Thorny's here in a bank holiday. Jerry, thank you. I know, great to have you in. Now, I know you're you're not a massive fan of the new structure of the Champions Cup and the Mm -hmm. truncated knockout stages. You're not a massive Toulon fan, I think it's fair to say that publicly. (laughs) Did you enjoy that final? No. (laughs) Emotionally and financially, it was a disappointment to me. (laughs) Um, No, I didn't. I really wanted Claremont to win for all the reasons we discussed in this program before. And, you know, the Yellow Army and the rapport they built up with the Leinster, Munster and Ulster fans over the years. And, um, and the rugby they play, most of all the brand of rugby they play, I think uh, the European competition would be much poorer without them. They, they brought basically from France what Leinster, Munster before Leinster did. And, you know, they, just that whole, that whole feel-good factor around rugby. I mean, rugby, the European Cup this year would actually have been quite boring without Claremont in it. And Toulon generally play, I feel, I feel a fairly boring brand of rugby. I don't like the way their checkbook philosophies work so well. I don't think they're... They're what everybody else should aspire to. Um, they provide four maximum. That's for them a good year to the French team. I mean, they're 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 he's built an empire. There's no doubt about it. And they're forced to be reckoned with in in many ways and, and will be for for many years to come by the looks of things. But um, I just think it would have been better for the competition if Clermont had won it. Will it just be? It, are they going to be sort of the apex of this idea that you can throw money at it or? Is this a pointer to how it's going to be in the future? Because it's not as though they're the first team, particularly in France, who's done this. Do we have to get used to the idea that football, that rugby has been, <laughs> has been going the way of football and will we'll continue to do so? Well, it is, yeah. Money talks. It's a small, small scaled-down version of football, but money talks. Toulon have probably the biggest budget in Europe, and they've won the Heineken Cup for three years in a row. Claremont would have one of the biggest budgets in France, and those two generally the top two and the top 14. Um, so yeah, I mean Saracens are a wealthy club, Northampton are a wealthy club, Leicester are a wealthy club, it, and Leinster should be the strongest in, in Ulster if you apply that across the board because they're the wealthiest in Ireland. But generally, money does talk, and when you've got a situation like Bain Sport coming on board with Canal Plu and BT coming on board as a rival to Sky, it really inflates the market. So you've got um, this twinfold effect of money owners like Murad Bulijal and Jackie Lorenzetti and Bruce Craig. Um, which the Irish provinces don't have, and then you've got the new deals. I mean, Canal Plu paid three hundred and fifty million over f- seven years, seventy million a year over five years, rather three hundred and fifty million. 
um, for right to the top 14 alone. And uh, that is the kind of money being generated in the French and English leagues, which, frankly, the Pro 12 clubs just can't generate. It inflates the market time, but I don't know. It, it struck me that this game occur- it was a pretty good game, actually, yeah. for those who watched the final, but occurred in something of a vacuum, certainly in Ireland and the UK. And maybe even in France, they prefer the idea of one of their teams going up against Leinster or one of the English sides rather than these all French ties. Well, the reports from France as well is that there wasn't a huge amount of hype ahead of this game. In England, they certainly didn't care. Um, And in Ireland, there was very little buzz about the whole thing. And then when you see the stadium and you hear about the tickets um, not being sold, and then you watch the thing, and the the actual rugby on the pitch is pretty good, but... the. Just, you just know there's maybe 5,000 people in the stadium who really care about that event. And if you say rugby is um, this great sport, or we all like to think it is, um, and then ultimately the final of the European Cup is a quieter event. It's, it's smaller than some of the group stages in many ways. It's got less atmosphere and less people care about it. And it just seems to me, if you think you've got this really healthy sport, then how the hell is the final of the European Cup such a, a weak day overall? Well, they didn't help themselves by <clears throat> rushing off the knockout stages in a four-week period. That was just plain daft. That was to appease Paul Gold and Eleanor and the French club owners who wanted an unfettered run-in for their um, French championship. And the English were quite happy to go along with it. And the unions and federations cravenly gave, gave in at that point because they were just browbeaten into submission. So that's what they did. So we've got a quarterfinal two weeks after Six Nations. I mean, that's preposterous itself. And then the semi-final two weeks later and the final two weeks later. So... I don't think when you then have three of the four quarterfinals in France and the French clubs have home advantage in the semi-finals. I mean, for example, how many of the Irish diaspora, even in London, are going to risk buying tickets? It has a look of an all-French final from a long way out. So it was a hard sell. Um, structurally, the, or- the organisation is not as good as it was, even though they've hired a lot of the old staff. Um, it's been a bit of a mess, frankly, by all accounts, off, off the pitch. Um, and they were left very short time to sell t- t- tickets in advance of this final. Twickenham was an unimaginative choice of venue. And the only way they're going to avoid something like this happening again is go back to the system that used to apply, whereby it was a three-week gap to the quarterfinal, then another three-week gap to semi-final, and so on to the final. When we say something like this happening again, we mean French teams, so is it part oh, of the I, fact I, that... No, no, no. Uh, well, a couple of things. One, uh, to avoid the kind of occasion that Simon is talking about, which was very anticlimactic for the supposed blue ribbon of European club rugby. They have to go back to these three-weekly intervals. It gives them more time to sell the tickets and promote it and market it. And maybe there could be a way of hiring two venues in advance for a final and then deciding three weeks out when you know the makeup of the finalists. Like if Twickenham and Stade de France or French venue had been made available with a three-week period, it might have been possible to switch the venues then. But it's, they want it to be like the Champions League. Mm. But frankly, it isn't. And, you know, it's just not that massive appeal of a sport. Mm. And then you, if they really want to ape the Champions League, then they should be having their final in early June like the Champions League is doing. June the 6th is the European Champions League final. And made and made the second to the rugby final. I mean, it's just it's lunacy. It was daft. It was ill conceived, and uh, they've got to change and they've got to learn from these mistakes. So there's a few things they can do. As for the French clubs always dominating, I'm not so sure. We've got to remember Simon that they both won narrow home semi finals. They had the luck of the draw again. And Ireland's Irish teams, particularly Munster, have been really unlucky in the semi final draw. And we don't prefer to that. We we've got used to it. So we don't comment about it so much anymore. But there have been 13 occasions Irish teams have been drawn against French teams in the semi-finals of the European Stroke Heineken Cup. And they've been away in 10 of them. Munster have had seven semi-finals against French teams, every single one of them away. But for the luck of the draw, the history of the Heineken Cup could read a lot differently because it is a huge advantage. And it squeezed Toulon through an extra time. It squeezed um, Clermont through by one score. So if they'd been, if there was a two-legged semi-final, which won't happen, or if you, if you get some more balance in the draw and the French clubs don't go on getting home, with some, sure the power is with them at the moment, but I don't think they're that far out of sight. Maybe the problem isn't with the French or with Toulon because a lot of the envy and hatred is aimed at Toulon, but mm. really maybe it's that money. Mm or new money, or, or a perceived lack of tradition, even though Toulon used to be a good club, and it's just in the last 20 years that they haven't been so good. But um, do, do you think rugby as a whole, and maybe it's more in Ireland, that still has a problem with this idea that cash is king now and that it's going to follow the football template? Like, should Leinster, Munster, Ulster, Connacht be fully embracing cash now and just be, instead of thinking about academies and, and all these other ways of making yourself a great club, the reality is there now three in a row from Toulon. Claremont have been in two of those finals. Saracen's in the other one. And maybe it should be all about getting wealth in, getting other investments in and, and looking at the new template that's in France. I'm not so sure about the Simon. It's an interesting point you make. Certainly Johnny Sexton wouldn't be coming home. We know that if it hadn't been for Dennis O'Brien. Um, we don't know who's be helping behind the scenes in, in Ulster, but they... 
for Pilato to come and the money that's been reported suggests that they're getting some kind of financial backing from outside the organisation. Um, Munster could certainly do with it. Um, they've, I don't think they've marketed their brand at all well when you think of where they were and where they've now declined to on and off the pitch. Um, so they need financial investment all of them. But the Irish, the RFU run a very good model in terms of the four teams are there to serve Team Ireland and Ireland have just won back-to-back Six Nations. And they wouldn't have done that had it not been for what the problems to supply them. So the, there's been a shift in the balance of power away from the problems towards the national team as well. And coming into a World Cup year, I don't think too many of us are going to complain about that. But you're right, it needs more financial backing. I think um, Leinster are in a good sound position uh, financially. And the, the model of four overseas signings and a core of, of your team being home-based does serve the Irish team very well. And it has enabled the problems to be competitive in Europe. And I think they can go on being so. But they have to be very shrewd in the signings they make. And, of course, when it comes to the Quaid Coopers, Man Nonu's uh, and uh, Dwayne Vermeulen's and perhaps Paul O'Connell, it's, um, it's only the two non can really afford these players, these high-caliber players. But there's still a lot of good players around, a lot of good coaches, a good feeder system from your academy. I, still, I do think the province can be competitive. And we shouldn't decry new money too much because it has boosted the salary of players. It wasn't for well, the that's club. what I'm saying. Maybe we should just embrace it a little more because no. I think there's still a hangover from the amateur days to some extent, even though we're 20 years into it now or whatever. Yeah, what, but how, to what degree did the, the IRFU lose control of all their players? I mean, part of the reason that the Irish t- team wins the Six Nations back-to-back and might go to the World Cup as contenders is because of the player management programme. That wouldn't be possible if the IRFU didn't own all the contracts, which is effectively what they do. Now, whether Sean Cronin would have got an operation last week had Leinster been in the European Champions final, Champions Cup final. You'd have to wonder. But, um, and he's now unavailable for Leinster's last two Pro 12 games, but he'll be back in time for the pre-season friendlies. And this is an example of where the balance has very much shifted now towards the international team. And there are benefits to be had in that. Um, I think the, the danger of overreaction, I do think you're right. I think the more private money they, they can get in, obviously the better. And to what degree they have to go to that will decide to some degree how competitive they will remain with the, with the leading French club. One of the key issues, I think, is, and it's connected to what you guys are talking about, if Irish teams stop becoming successful in the tournament, clearly mm. interest in that, in, in that will decrease mm. or certainly won't grow to the extent that it has been over the last few years. <clears throat> and as an add-on to that, I've noticed this season... I don't know if you would agree, Jerry, but it seems that with BT coming, a friend of mine, for example, saying to me last week that he had he had the Sky package, he enjoyed Heineken Cup as much as any other sport. The only realised this season when he went to watch a Leinster game, this is on BT, I have to pay extra money for this. So BT Sport have come in, and this all sounds great because it's more money coming into the game, but it also means that you've got to pay two separate uh, packages, essentially, four two separate packages to be able to even watch the games. There's a danger that, allied to less success, might actually see fans being somewhat alienated from the tournament or at least might see a, a slowdown in the popularity of the Heineken Cup, of the Champions Cup in Ireland. Definitely. We've only had one season and already you can feel there's a bit of a disconnect like never before. I mean, the amount of people who were even surprised the final was on last weekend. or They just don't seem as connected with it. And you're right, it's because of this competition is good for the sport. It's supposed to be good for the viewer, but it hasn't. It's you just pay seen, a lot of money to see just all the seen, games. Yeah. It's just seen the viewer get ripped off is basically what's happened because they've had to pay two packages instead of one. Um, and yeah, there's been a real disconnect in Ireland. I don't know what it's like in England, but British Telecom is more widely available there, I suppose, and people have it. But yeah, I, even, even with the signing of O'Driscoll, I don't think that Irish supporters have really connected with this tournament like they've done in the past. And the warning signs are there. Because the success was so good, because it was almost too good to be true, five Heineken Cups in seven seasons, that was never going to be repeated anyway. That was always going to be a little bit of a golden era. just couldn't last. I remember writing that at the time. We can't get used to this and expect this to be normal. But then when you add, when you add in that and you see the, the way that the cl- crowds have already drifted away in Thoman Park this season, um, Leinster fans, I, th- I think, are drifting away a little bit as well. It would only take a few seasons of the problems not being competitive and you've got a real problem then. Yeah, I agree with you. You mentioned Paul O'Connell there and his link to Toulon, a link made by you, established by you, uh, denied initially by Toulon, but uh, now their owner is uh, throwing a few straws in the air, I think. Yeah, he is. Maybe he's just being mischievous. He was on RCM radio, um, Paris-based radio station on Sunday, invited on for a telephone interview and the interviewer, Lauren Dupuy asked him, um, <clears throat> will Dwayne Vermeulen and Paul O'Connell be at Toulon next season? And he said, one of the two will be at Toulon. Now, he's just probably being mischievous. Maybe it's just going to be Vermeulen. But Vermeulen has been linked to three other French clubs as well. So I would be amazed if it wasn't Vermeulen. 
frankly. I, I believe Paul O'Connor says he has, he's not talked to Toulon. Um, he has another year to go on his contract. Joe Schmidt and Do- David Nussefor seem to be quite adamant that they won't be breaking that contract up. So in other words, for Boulajal to get his man, and if he does want O'Connell, and I've been reliably informed that he does, they've identified him as the player they want. They want a kind of a European iconic figure like Johnny Wilkinson. They've missed him on the pitch. William, Ali Williams and Mackie's both are both retiring. They want O'Connell, but they haven't spoke to him yet, and they would have to buy him out of the final year of his contract. And the soundings from Paul O'Connell are that he's inching closer to retirement after the World Cup, I think. Jerry, would you like the idea, say Ronald Gar has gone to Racing, Paul goes to Toulon, and then they hoover up whatever knowledge is there and then come back as a partnership with Munster Ireland? That would be so, yeah, the, the dream ticket, the Munster yeah. dream ticket. Um, yes. Do you like the idea of guys going abroad yes. and getting different sorts yes. of information? Yeah, different I influences. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it broad, travel broadens the mind and certainly different experience and different culture. I mean, O'Gara is on the record as saying he's learned way more in his year and a half at Racing Mentor than he would have done if he stayed home. He learned more in the first few months than he probably would have done by staying at home for a few years. And I do think it, it enhances their CV. I mean, look at John O'Gibbs now, for example. Kiwis do this all the time. They're career coaches. Mm. And they're quite willing to uproot their family and move abroad in the interest of their coaching career. John O'Gibbs went, to, went straight from playing with um, Waikato and the Chiefs to coaching Leinster. Spent five years there as a forwards coach, now in Clermont Auvergne. I mean, <clears throat> he's, he's, he's seen the end game. He's seen it's a long game and he's backing himself by bringing up these different... So I would imagine he could go back to New Zealand to get a job tomorrow. He could come back to Ireland and get a job tomorrow. He could get a job in France. And he could probably get a job in England as well. So the more a coach travels, the more knowledge he gleans, the better coach he becomes and um, the more wanted he becomes. You think, though, the, you reckon the soundings from O'Connell indicate that he's closer to retirement? He says he's 90% yeah. of the way to making a decision. Now, he hasn't said what the decision is, but I, I took the same meaning from that yeah. that you did. That, yeah. it, that sounds like, I think I'm going to retire, but I just don't want to prematurely announce that. And that's the thing. You see, if he did want to go to Toulon for a year, I don't really think the RFU and, the, and, and Munster would dare stand in his way. And the same if he wants to retire. They can't well make him play on to the end of his contract. Daddy is seemingly so close to a decision would lead you to believe that perhaps he's going to retire. And it, retiring at the end of a World Cup would be such a more natural stopping point, wouldn't it, than carrying on for the rest of the season with Munster and Ireland. What do you think, Simon? I think if Ireland get to a semi-final or a final, he'll retire. Mm. All right, well, we'll see what happens there. Jerry, great to have you in as always. Cheers. Thank you. Mm. You remember my grandmother, no disrespect, when I used to get in trouble, she looked at me and said, hmm. And I knew a butt was coming at the <laughs> I'm an alien. Think about it. Roy Jones is born. Jane, 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 Tony is born. I ran Barkley is born. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. But I'm telling you right now. I'm an alien. Just Google it and get your own information. I'm an alien. He should be gone. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an alien. Mm. Yeah, I mentioned the Toulon players earlier, so I didn't get a chance to chat to Jerry about that aspect of it. But I know you were struck by the post-match interviews. We watched it on... BT, uh, watched some of the BT coverage yeah. and Stefan Armitage and Lee Halfpenny were both interviewed, neither of them too overjoyed by just being coming European champions Even Brian O'Driscoll commented on it, he, he was disappointed, a little shocked, Stefan Armitage was immediately talking about the top 14 and we've Big, talked, game, big game against Cast this weekend, he said, which is true I'm sure, but Yeah, just enjoy the You've night. just won your third in a row and there's already that feeling that they're bored by their own achievements and it all feels so new to everybody else but for Toulon, the Maybe they just feel like everything's so stacked in their favour they have to win a lot of them in a row for it to feel like any sort, of, else, yeah. any sort of achievement. Yeah, well, well, the idea of it, I suppose, is that you have to suffer for it. Um, and if Claremont had won, that, there would, that it wouldn't have been a win in Twickenham in a final. It would actually have been the culmination of 10 or 15 years of actual struggle Yeah, Munster-esque sort of journey. Yeah, and I, and I suppose that's what people are looking for in Toulon and that's what Toulon haven't gone through because... The players don't stay there for fifteen years, and at the end of wi- uh, at the end of which they they get like say if Aurelien Rougerie was being interviewed at the end of the game, you can be absolutely certain that the the emotion would have been completely completely different. Yeah. I mean, again, it's not you can't get too um, 
you can't you know there's no point in in asking Toulon to to feel something that they don't feel and there's no point in holding it against them that they've got loads of money and happen to have an absolutely brilliant rugby team it's just again it's it's kind of similar to yeah, the the Mayweather chat we just had, you know, the, the some people are cursed by their own ability uh, to be liked or not liked, cursed by their own success to be liked or not liked, and that's just the way it is. Bujadal was the owner, the very wealthy owner of Toulon, was doing his man of the people routine with the Claremont fans. I don't know if you saw this. He went down to the Claremont end afterwards and was commiserating with them. Uh, unfortunately for him, that meant that he ended up being stuck there with. Uh, I seem to take, talk about the Claremont fans drinking a lot over the last few days, but a couple of them looked a little bit worse for wear, and we're doing the full-on selfie with them where it takes about a minute to get it right, and he's probably immediately regretting being stuck down that end with the Claremont well, the fans. Cl- the Claremont fans were happier than the Toulon players. This is the Claremont fans who've had years of mi- misery, the mayo of rugby, I guess, and uh, yeah, it was pretty striking. The Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast is already out. That's... Yeah... <laughs> They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six and a half years. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to one field and we'll see them, won't we? What are you doing down here, you shawny man? (laughs) Well, are we talking about uh, meltdowns? couple of meltdowns. Nigel Pearson last week, but he, he uh, froze back up again. He's uh, he's once again intact, and Leicester City uh, dismantled Newcastle United, prompting a meltdown from John Carver, uh, their standard manager. So we'll talk a bit about him, and we'll also talk a little bit about Jose Mourinho, who has won his third league title now with Chelsea Football Club, equaling uh, the total of Arsene Wenger in far fewer seasons. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that. Well, it, uh, it's taken Waterford hurlers their entire history to win three league titles. They managed their third one yesterday with a hammering of Cork. A recently retired tip legend Owen Kelly is ready to chat to us about this one. Owen, great to have you on. Uh, they have been Waterford have been criticised for the defensive nature of some of their play over the league campaign. I don't know if that's fair criticism. They did manage to score one twenty four, including some absolutely insane scores yesterday. Is it possible to to do both to be defensive and also entertaining? Well, I think that's put that to, be, to base about being a defensive team truly to bed in the last two games. 124, yes, they 119 against Tip. And if you probably go through their scores during the league, they've been hitting 20 points or plus in all their games, you know. So, you know, look, they just have a system of play that I think it's going to be a psychological battle for some teams now when they come up against them because they know it's coming, but they're not sure how to prepare properly for it. And I think that's the trap that Cork fell into yesterday. So it's going to be interesting to see in four or five weeks' time how they have dealt with it, we'll say, having another four or five weeks preparation, because I'm sure they would have prepared for it two or three weeks to uh, build up to the, the league final, but um, they didn't get it right. And I think from the first ball that went into the top corner, uh, Shane O'Neill fumbled it after only 10 or 12 seconds. And I think that told the story of uh, Cork uh, as individuals and as a team all day. They were you know, mishandling the balls. They just weren't at the races. The fact that Waterford have shipped a bit of criticism for the style, certainly uh, some of it might be almost like a backhanded compliment when people say that they're a defensive team. Is that indicative of an attitude that maybe exists in hurling that there's still an element people don't, a lot of people anyway, don't particularly like the idea of teams being too clever for their own good or being a little bit defensive? It's something that we've seen in football, obviously, over the last few years and maybe hurling people are worried that it's creeping into, into that game. Well, to be honest with you, Owen, and I went on record before saying like that I think a lot of football tactics are in hurling, not only this year, but the last four or five seasons, to be honest with you. Galway's great run in 2012. Uh, I remember being at the game. I remember Joe Canning putting a free over the bar from 40 yards, put him four points up with about maybe 10 minutes to go, and he ushered everybody back to field um, to, to, to face the puck out. So Anthony Cunningham had previously managed, I think, St. Bridges and Roscommon. So I think he brought some football tactics there into the Galway dressing room and they had a successful campaign in 2012. Kilkenny, as far back as 2006, their two midfielders fell deep. Their half-forwards, he was in 10 and 12, he was fall back and create space inside. And they were smothering the Cork short ball tactic that time. So I think football tactics are well and truly in her in the last four or five years. But I suppose it's just, we're so used to the flamboyant Waterford players of old who are all now gone. I think his compliments to Derek McGrath. Um, he probably owns that dressing room now. He might have fell last year when a couple of the older guys were still there. He didn't fully own the dressing room, so he fully owns that dressing room now with those younger guys there. And they're, they're reaping the rewards of it. So this myth that um, the Hurland football tackles are, are creeping into the Hurland this season, 
I think it's been there the last couple of seasons, to be honest with John. Some of the old Waterford spirit is still there. We see them celebrating freeze as wildly as ever. Are, are Waterford the, we've, we've put this on record on TV before, I think, that we feel Waterford are possibly the greatest county ever for wildly celebrating tiny moments in games. What do you think? Look, I, I love watching Waterford play, to be honest with you. Um, you know, just like, they're a county that's won their third league title, we'll say, ever, yesterday. You know, some of the freeze they were winning, it just shows you the passion. and They were really, really upward. Like, and, you know, like, Derek McGrath said today in one or two of the articles that more flair probably come into their team down the road, but I think they had um, they had a gesture like that. Austin Gleeson he he announced his name to the hurling world last year by scoring one of the best goals ever scored in the Munster Championship. He scored an incredible sideline yesterday from forty five fifty yards on a wet day, mm. and then he's point up the right wing with a dummy hand pass and off the hurl over the bar. Like you can you can rave about that score for all time, like but. They probably don't get the credit they deserve, but like I, I think they have some serious flamboyant players, and there's a serious skill level in that Waterford team. And I, I think we're going to see more from them down the road, even though it's going to be harder now because we say the cat is out of the bag um, of what they bring to the table, and teams will prepare more so for them going forward. Yeah, and uh, I think that's a big point uh, that Derek McGrath raised even before the game yesterday. That uh, he that he used that exact phrase actually that the cat was a little bit out of the bag after the Tipperary the win over Tipperary in the semi final. But Stephen McDonald was asked afterwards uh, about kind of playing against Waterford and uh, trying to match himself up against Estelle. He said, uh, "We learn a lot uh, from that. It's up to us to whether we treat it as a blow or as a blessing. Me, for one, I'm definitely going to treat it as a blessing. I learned 100 percent from that game." That's the way I'm going to look at it. Um, there's, you know, you would have said, taking the Donegal example from football, that the only way you can actually learn to play against it is to actually experience it once and then try and take the, the lessons from it into the next game. Cork have had that game now and they still have five weeks to prepare for, for the championship. And I, that might be a, a big stumbling block for Watford because Tipperary, if... if 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 they happen to beat Cork in the semi Munster semi final, Tip could well be waiting for them in the Munster final. So that's the two teams that they've played in the in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, th- that's true, Kieran. And to be honest with you, there's there's fifteen cats. We all know what county they're from, and I think they'd be able to deal with that water system of play. And you know that's that's probably a long term goal of Derrick's when he comes up against the Kilkenny's uh, of this world. When he comes up against Kilkenny. That's where it'll really be the big test for him because Waterford, as we know, haven't beaten Kilkenny in the championship since, since I don't know when. So, you know, that's a long-term goal. But like, I think Cork now need to change dramatically uh, for the for the Munster semi-final and keep it as low-key as they can. Like, Seamus Hardney won the world of possession half-forward yesterday in the year. He had four or five brilliant catches. But Pat Horgan inside was very quiet. So if I was Jimmy Barry Murphy the next day, I'd maybe play Seamus Hardy inside with another big man I'd maybe pull out an inside man and maybe have three across your midfield and three and a half forward line and I'd try and win the game from outside I'd have Pat Horgan maybe starting 11 I'd have another shooter 10 or 12 and that's where I'd try and win my game because you could lump in a long ball over that half back line where Water would like to have their men back and Seamus Hardy would be one of your guys that can win it in the air maybe Pat Cronin might come back into the frame the next day he's another man that can win the ball in the air Cork's problem is as well they don't have too many of those ball winners so I think that's the way they'll have to look at it because like Kilkenny would lorry that ball in over your half back line inside to the danger zone and then they'd have guys to win that ball in the air so that's where they'd have the the strength in depth over uh, water if they met him down the road but I think Cork will have to change their tactics for this and look you know what I mean one or two penalties maybe we haven't seen a penalty I was hoping to see a penalty in, in the last couple of games just to see what it's like one on one in the bigger games you know so like it's, it's, next, it's going to be exciting the next day but I definitely think Waterford or Cork have to change up the, the way they, they use the ball and, and get you know get more into that D into the danger zone to, to try and create things because Waterford won't let you score a goal so I think Cork will have to win it from outside Are you surprised that, that they were so surprised by Waterford's approach though this is something that's been levelled at Jimmy Barry Murphy before with Cork that for all the strengths that he brings as manager to that team they maybe don't worry enough about what the opposition are going to do Yeah probably maybe so and I think Tip went with the same approach uh, to Waterford the last day and after the first seven or eight nine minutes of the Tip Waterford semi-final you would have said Tip are in a nice position here but the one thing I admire about Waterford is the whether they're six points up or six points down, they're just playing to the mould um, the mould that Derek McGrath has them in now. And I thought, and Jimmy Barry commented on it, their skill level was unbelievable. Yes, they took a few showers during the game, but their stick passes 30, 40 yards. It was unbelievable. Brick Walsh, not renowned for his skill, brought down the ball into his hands. So I'd say, 
like tactically they're doing a lot of work but they're hurling their skill level is is top of the pops as well like so you know and and um, I suppose after getting rid of the few older guys he has young guys that can run that can run other teams into the ground up to the 71st 72nd minute so you know for, for to have a successful team Derek McGrath has all the ingredients but if, you know there probably is waters all in one this year I can't see him maybe going going on the whole way but it's a big uh, it, it builds into their belief system that they can compete with the best and I think that's what Derek McGrath wanted out of the league campaign and he got that Alright Owen Kelly great to have you on thanks a million OK guys it does sound an awful lot like the Donegal comparison from football, Murph, but I was really interested when Owen took us back there to, we're talking three years ago, to Galway were, were yeah. I say, I'm saying doing this sort of thing, just working out ways of playing hurling that isn't simply man-on-man, get the, even Brian Cody last year was seeing that he maybe took a bit more of a tactical leap than he has done in previous seasons. It's actually okay to think about the game. It doesn't all have to be natural. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if ever there is a sport... Uh, designed for a manager to do something like this then it's uh, well if you look at the role of honour there there appear to be three counties that have won many many All-Irelands and a lot of other counties who have not won very many at all Uh, and yet that they're still capable of they're still capable of one soft results against one or two of the big three but if you know if you beat two the third one will probably get you so why not try and just sweeten the deal a little bit your end try and take a little bit of that sort of natural advantage that those three counties appear to have over you I mean uh, and, and again it's like it's not like yesterday was the death of hurling I mean Waterford played some really really good really really good stuff as Owen said are putting up big big scores this is not Donegal uh, this is not uh, uh, you know uh, the slow death um, uh, type of hurling that, 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 that people seem to be talking about it's basically just a little bit of a tweak on, as one is saying, uh, previously previously uh, tried experiments. The last word in this programme about Mo- Rory McIlroy. Rory McIlroy wins many, many millions of dollars. <laughs> okay, that'll do the job. World uh, Golf Championship. Yeah, well, uh, match play. Um, so a slightly different way for Rory to win many millions of, of, of dollars. But uh, I suppose no matter how he wins them, they're all, they all look the same. Um, but yeah, absolutely amazing. One managed to win three games in one day. Uh, put Paul Casey away in a playoff hole at 7am in the morning beat Jim Fjork with a raking 40 foot eagle put on the 18th and then uh, took care of the final as well so pretty impressive thanks Murph thank you thank you Kenny thank you Kieran and thank you thanks for listening check out irishtimes.com forward slash secondcaptains you can follow us on Twitter at secondcaptains hope you enjoyed the show what is that that's the second time it's gone off they never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.